Uh, well, to start off with, I- I'm curious about where you guys grew up. This is a this is a movie about growing up. Uh, you guys have worked on movies about uh, growing up and, and being rascally kids. So, what kind of rascals were you? I started off growing up in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, and moved to Texas when I was eight years old, and have lived in Dallas ever since. And always kind of, you know, my parents always made a, a, a put a, made a, made sure that we had a big backyard. So that was always important, like having a, a, a big backyard to go build forts in and play in. So that was, in spite of growing up in, in the city, in the suburbs, that was always, the, the wilderness was always part of it. Yeah, I grew up in, uh, in the center of Dallas in a little, little area called Town Creek, uh, climbing in storm drains and gutters and uh, through creeks all the way to White Rock Lake. I, getting uh, getting stuck in the mud is a is a good way to is a good way to grow up. Covered Indeed. in burrs and everything. It's, it's true. Uh, so you both uh, you both discovered the original Peach Dragon as uh, as kids. Did you both wear out tapes of this thing? Was it was it that big of a deal to to each of you? I, I certainly did. I I grew up without a television or VCR. My parents were very uh, very focused on literature and not on movies or television uh, in terms of what we were allowed to to intake in terms of media. And so I saw the movie on VHS at a friend's house, which is how I saw most movies at that age. And I saw it once and liked it, but that was, that was the end of that for me. What, uh, what did you manage to sneak in as uh, literature-based entertainment? Were you reading, reading books that, uh, that, that helped capture your imagination? I was, I was a big fan of My Side of the Mountain, that kind of thing, kind of boy exploring the wilderness kind of thing. You know, it's funny that I never read that one. I watched that movie before we started work on Pete's Dragon because we felt it was a movie we should probably look at. But I'd never read that. But certainly uh, the Boxcar Children were a huge influence on everything I've ever done, I think. Um, anything involving kids surviving the wild, whether it was something as classic as Swiss Family Robinson or um, Julia the Wolves. I mean, the Boxcar Children really was sort of like the end-all be-all for me. But if there were, if there were kids surviving on their own without adults... Uh, preferably building some sort of fort, I was all over it. Calvin and Hobbes was another one. That was like that was a huge part of my upbringing. And every adventure he went on, everything that he did in those comic strips, I would try to replicate, including run away from running away from home to Alaska. Anything that you that you snuck that uh, that, that got in and corrupted your brain? I didn't have to sneak anything. My parents were grossly inappropriate in taking me to see everything from RoboCop to Pet Cemetery. Um, but my favorite things were definitely Calvin and Hobbes. Um, yeah, sorry, I'll try no, and okay. get a little closer. This is my job. I just, you know, that's um, why I brought these things. <laughs> yeah, so sneaking wasn't really a thing for me. But I, I definitely, you know, Calvin and Hobbes was the big one for me. I would sneak away and I would just disappear for an afternoon reading those comics. As big Calvin and Hobbes fans, both of you, do you have a particular strip, a particular collection that leaps out at your mind, one that you broke the binding of, you know, Revenge of the Baby Sat? Any uh, of the ones where, where it wouldn't look like the traditional Calvin and Hobbes uh, strip at first, and then you realized it was just in his imagination. Like whether they were playing Doctor or it was just he was God creating the universe, those were all these ones that stuck, stuck out to me. I think uh, um, Yukon Ho was definitely the biggest one for me in terms of the collections, and that whole, that whole adventure is something that uh, has had a lasting impact on my life. I think in that, in that um, strip, Hobbs packs marshmallow sandwiches for them to eat, and that was something I paid homage to in St. Nick when I had the little girl make a giant marshmallow sandwich. 
And I certainly made many of those myself <laughs> growing up, uh, particularly when I want to go have an outdoor adventure, I'd make sure to pack one. It was definitely, uh, that was definitely a big one. Scientific progress goes boink was another one that I loved. I loved the idea of, of making things out of cardboard boxes, and that was all about using a cardboard box to uh, push scientific limits to the, to the furthest boundaries you possibly could, so that was exciting to me. Um, there, I mean, pretty much any. I, I loved all of them, but those were, those were the two that I remember the most and think back on the most and that definitely had a big impact on me playing outside having a, a big backyard or wilderness to, to play with is something that I don't think a lot of kids get that much of these days uh, how else did you act out your imagination were you also were you drawing were you writing things were you creating fantasy worlds that kind of thing yeah all, all of the above I definitely spent a lot of time playing with my Star Wars action figures I wasn't allowed to have G.I. Joe's because my parents were anti-gun so I didn't have any any G.I. Joe's or but the um, laser guns and laser swords those are fine those are fine um, yeah, just as long as they didn't have bullets, uh, but people with a thought, totally fine. Totally fine. Yeah. And, and, and now, you know, looking back on it, I, I'd rather, uh, expose kids to death by the dark side of the force than by a bullet. So it's a little bit more, uh, you know, it, it's less realistic. That's, which is a, a thankful thing these days. But, uh, the, you know, I did. Draw, I drew a lot. I drew comic books. I spent a lot of time just creating things, building castles out of cardboard boxes in the basement. Um, I definitely started once I realized how movies were made, which I was about seven years old. I started writing scripts, and I would build props and make uh, sets and and do all sorts of things. Even though I didn't actually own a camcorder, so I could never actually make the movies that I was planning. But I would I do everything else I possibly could, and I you know any 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 way that I could expend my imagination, I would. So whether that was just playing Willow in the backyard with my brothers and humming the soundtrack along with us, so to make our sword fights more exciting, or or creating giant dioramas with my Star Wars figures, or writing screenplays for uh, Indiana Jones ripoffs that uh, I was too young to realize I was ripping off so thoroughly. Uh, It was all fair game. I was doing all of it. How about you, Toby? Definitely like choreographing pretty absurd action sequences. Um, It never occurred to me that even though I think I did, I had one of those camcorders that used cassette tapes and they recorded black and white, but it never occurred to me that we could be making movies with them until like uh, I was a little bit older, but otherwise we would just choreograph these crazy stunt sequences in the neighborhood that would just like carry all the way from our our neighborhood into the creek and just continue a battle all the way, and just have insane games of Top Gun. We invented weird, yeah, all movie themed games. When, when my my dad took my brothers and I to see Last of the Mohicans, which was a big deal because it was the first time we'd gotten to see an R-rated movie, but he felt that, that would be appropriate for us, and. For years afterwards, we would go just play Last of the Mohicans, and our version of playing that was just to go find a big hill in the woods um, and run down it, yelping like Native Americans all the way down. And we get to the bottom of the hill and be like, "Okay, that was fun. Let's go do it again." And we just do that all day long. We just it would always be the same hill, and we just run down it all the time, like endlessly. And we got such a rush out of doing it, uh, and. And it wasn't really a game. It was just us running down a hill yelling, but that was our way of playing Last of the Mohicans. 
So in directing and working with kids in this movie, uh, what, what did you feel you needed to do to, to gear the script, to gear the production itself, to letting them be authentic kids? Because we've all seen kids on screen that are, are like robo-kids. Uh, you know, like they like they've you know had a quarter put in them and their their clockwork or something like that. And one of the things that's beautiful about the movie is that these are really lived in, you know, realistic to the extent that a kid who's been raised by a dragon for six years yes. can be. Uh, you know, these are these are real kids that you've got. A big part of it is casting, and just you know, you spend a lot of time meeting kids and looking at videotapes of auditions and and looking for that. That quality that you can't quite put into words, uh, but you know it when you see it. And I, I do, you know, recognize that the kids in this movie are incredibly talented actors on a technical level. They are able to hit their marks or memorize scenes or, you know, even, even just being front and center in front of a camera for a 75-day shoot. That requires an incredible amount of professionalism and, and skill on a technical level. But it was so important to me that they also uh, be allowed to be children and to and and to to have the wherewithal to forget that there was a camera or a crew or even a scene that we were shooting and just get lost in the moment and be themselves. I really wanted kids who could be themselves, and when I was looking for the when I was casting the film, I wasn't looking for an actor who could play Pete. I was just looking for Pete. And we found that with Oaks. We found that with, with Una, who plays Natalie. And so the biggest part of the job for me was, was casting it. And then the, the last you know, 5% was creating a context in which they would feel comfortable to, to be themselves and to forget that there was a camera and to forget that there was dialogue that I needed them to deliver and just exist in this world, in this context that we created for them. And, uh, and once we did that, you know, I didn't really have to do any directing. I would sometimes need to go in and get specific and say, I need you to be quieter. I need you to, to say that line quieter, or I need this scene to feel a little bit more emotional or a little bit less emotional or funnier. Or, but a lot of that just came through me adjusting the volume of my voice when I talked to them. If I started to bring my voice really low, they would sort of respond and the scene would take on a quality that reflected that. Or if it was a big, exciting scene that needed to have a boisterous quality, I'd just talk louder. And you'd find these ways to communicate with them that would get them in the right zone without me giving them specific directions. And I often find that when you start getting really specific with the directions, you lose a little bit of the spontaneity that makes the performances that they're able to give so special. Writing for kids, what was uh, what was a, a big important thing for you in terms of making sure that you were you were giving them something to work with? It wasn't just uh, you know hit this emotional trigger, hit this emotional trigger, you know do do a do a dance, you know entertain me. I mean, you just don't you don't talk down to them when you're you know you you don't talk down to them uh, or you don't write down to them. You you know I would always try to like think like a kid when I was writing. I don't know, which isn't very difficult for me, actually. Uh, it's a blessing. I, maybe so. <laughs> we'll find out. But, um, yeah, so there, uh, it, it wasn't a challenge. I don't know. And I don't think we had to do tons of rewrites of their dialogue. It was all just kind of natural. And But definitely being cognizant of, like, not trying to make them sound stupid or, like, ignorant, you know, and or even too innocent, you know. It's just thoughtful. 
if anything, they're I mean they're really the most emotionally available characters in the movie. Exactly, they're the most intuitive. What uh, what kinds of uh, every movie anybody makes? You know, there are pleasant surprises, things that kind of get added in as the process goes forward as you're making it. Uh, were there any alterations or changes or just tweaks that you guys found that you made uh, during production? Things that you discovered once you were actually on set working with the actors as you were you know part of the way through the process. I mean, that, all, uh, that changed anything all the time. Um, but I mean, it was so every day that it was just subtle i mean you know the actor can do this okay well we're going to use that (laughs) um i don't know um i I don't know david what do you think i mean you you were actually one directing it so you had to do more there would be specific things where like a, a a very you know literal and and clear example would be uh carl urban working with him and and utilizing him to the best of his abilities because that character was written in a very different way then he performed it. But when we cast him and started working with him and seeing what his strength, strengths were, we would change the character. Uh, we changed the character to, to, to fit what he could do. And he, he had, you know, he, he's a strapping dude. He looks, he's very handsome. He's tall. He's muscular. And we realized that rather than have this character be sort of a sliniveling, pathetic loser, he should be played as if he, is, if he thinks he's the hero of the story. And Carl is a very heroic guy. He's got that stature. And so it was, it, it really played into his strengths to allow him to do that. So all of the dialogue that he would shout, like, follow that dragon, none of that was in the script. It was all stuff that came about because we saw how he was, how he could play, best play that character. Uh, the scene where he walks into the cave with the flashlight, that was something that we came up with the day before we shot it because we realized that that guy would not just wait you know, nervously outside of a cave, he would go in there and explore it and, and try to solve the mystery because he does indeed think of himself as the hero. Carl said he wanted to play him like Indiana Jones and, and the, the, brilliant, the brilliant idea that he had was that he thinks, if he thinks he's Indiana Jones but is in fact like the villain of the movie, it allows him to be a little bit more sympathetic because he doesn't think he's doing something evil he thinks he's saving the day he thinks he's rescuing the family from the dragon in the woods and doesn't uh and and doesn't realize how poor his decisions the decisions he make uh, he doesn't realize how stupid the decisions he's making actually are yeah he comes off like the the high school quarterback who's finally going to reclaim his his glory of peaking in high school and he's going to be the great hero that's going to slay the dragon that's literally how we described it to him i, I was like <laughs> i was like dude you were playing the guy who was the alpha male in high school and hasn't realized that the entire world has left you behind. Now you're fixing air conditioning units or something. Exactly. You're working for your younger brother's logging company. So the, the titular star of the movie, your dragon, is, is all CG, uh, beautifully composed by the people at Weta. Was there any consideration given to doing any sort of mixed practical and digital effect work with it? Or was it, well, we've just got to pick one and go that way? I absolutely pushed for a practical version of Elliot at first. And I, I felt that if, if, if Jurassic Park could have had that perfect marriage of animatronic and CG uh, visual effects, then why couldn't we do the same thing? And what really sealed the deal on not doing that was the fur, because we consulted with a lot of visual effects companies, and you know, even before Weta was on board, and the consensus was that if you have a character covered in fur, um, the practical fur and the digital fur will never m- mesh they will never look exactly the same, and we would have wound up replacing all of the the animatronic uh, versions of Elliot with a fully CG version anyway. Because when you have 
fur on a character, it all it responds to things in a different way. Uh, when you have a real animal, the fur is going to move in a different way than it would if it was sewn into a big, you know, rubber animatronic. And so, in reality, the digital fur can look more realistic than the animatronic version would. And when we started to realize that and and see some examples of it, um, we realized that we'd really just be better off going fully CG. And that was a little a little sad for me because I love practical effects. And I, you know, if if I had, you know, had my druthers, I might have done this entire movie in stop motion animation because I just love things like that. But I, at the same time, I also know that that wouldn't be what modern audiences want to see. I think I've got a soft spot for stop motion animation that uh, that looks, the, you know, that looks like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or even Nightmare Before Christmas, where it's a little bit rougher. And I think that children. Uh, of this generation who are going to see movies now at the age of four, five, six, seven, ten, they're so used to what CG looks like that if you see something more handmade or more herky-jerky that it, it would feel false to them. And so I needed to respect that. I needed to respect my audience and what they, what they are used to seeing. And when you look at something like Kubo and the Two Strings, which is or any Leica movie, the stop motion in that is beautiful, but they figure out a way to blend it with CG so that it doesn't feel strange to audiences. It feels the same as a movie like Frozen or a movie like Wreck-It Ralph, but it has the tangible qualities that I appreciate and I know to look for them, but, but, they, but they don't feel like the stop motion animation films of yore because I think audiences don't respond the same way to them that they, they may have in the past. One of the things that I that I like uh, so much about the movie is is the time that you set it in. We've got physical phones that are ringing. We've got some actual. It it, it doesn't feel like the surreal age that we live in these days. W- was that an early choice that you guys went in, knowing that you wanted to make setting it a number of years in the past? We started writing this movie like within a week or two of Anthem Body Saints premiering at Sundance, and we premiered the movie within two weeks of finishing post-production on it. So we were still in that mindset. And that was a movie that we very definitively set in an uh, indeterminate time period because we felt it allowed the film to exist in a different realm. We wanted it to feel like a fairy tale to a certain extent. We wanted it to feel unstuck in time, to borrow a phrase from Kurt Vonnegut. And so as we began working on this literal fairy tale, it just made sense to do the same thing. And so we used Ain't the Body Saints as an example of what we wanted to do, of how we wanted the film to feel like it took place generally in the past, noticeably in the fat past, but never with any degree of specificity. And there's some degree of nostalgia there. There's no doubt about it, but it's not a movie that's slavishly tied to nostalgia. We didn't ever put a movie on the theater marquee. We never made references to what president was in office. We never, we never settled on an actual year that it took place and we just looked for things that felt right, that felt like the right amount of yesterday, the right amount of history, the right amount of being in the past. And if it felt right, it worked for us and there was no guidebook for that. It just was a gut instinct sort of thing. But it definitely was in the script. It was like, you know, we'd written scripts, we'd written versions of scripts where... Where cell phones exist. Where cell phones existed or where um, the, someone videotaped the dragon and it just always felt or wrong. Like drones or something. That it never went that far, but just even like having like the local news channel 
go and film the dragon. Like, that existed in one draft of the script. And that could have existed in the 80s or the 70s. That would have been fine. But it just having that infringement of technology got in the way of the storytelling. It got in the way of the magic. And so it was better just to set the movie in a time period in a, a place where that didn't feel possible or where it wasn't prevalent and where you could get away with having a fantastical creature be seen by a lot of people and yet still remain a secret. What kind of freedom did that give you, Toby, in, uh, in composing things, uh, both from, from Anthony's Body Science, uh, you know, forward into this project? Did, did it, uh, you know, free up, uh, you know, any anxieties about, you know, would this work, would this motivation work, would, you know, this uh, thing or this other thing? It's just an uh, operating principle. Like, we, I, I feel like we, it, it freed us up just I don't know it, it just let us focus on the story and the things that mattered uh, about the story to us because it doesn't people being able to take pictures of the dragon or like mass communicate and quickly communicate about it what, weren't the things that were appealing it was like the people that we the characters we had created we wanted them to have to rush over to somebody else if they were going to have to tell them what happened you know it wasn't about I can just let everybody know right now we're in the middle of the forest like we wanted it to feel isolated uh, and the whole community to feel isolated. So, I mean, that was a, early on an idea we had. The movie did blow up really big in one version, um, but it just felt wrong. So it was a pretty, I don't know, it always, it, it, these things kind of weed themselves out pretty quickly. Like, uh, we can sniff out bad ideas pretty quick, luckily. Well, overall, it has this simple mythic structure and feel to it overall. Um, one of the things that I, you know, you mentioned uh, Carl Urban and not thinking of himself as the villain of the piece, I really think of the um, the inciting villain of the piece being Bambi. Uh, so I, I'd love to know, you know, what it is that you guys have against Bambi. Uh, you know, d- you know, was, was it uh, was it a particularly traumatizing movie in your childhood? I mean, it was, of course. Um, Bambi's Revenge. I, I saw somebody had written. Um, I, it didn't even occur to me. <laughs> yeah, I was just, you know. When we were making Anthem Body Saints, yeah. uh, we went to Skywalker Ranch, and to get to Skywalker Ranch, you have to drive, we went up there to do the sound mix, and to get there, you have to drive down this 20-mile road that uh, is long and winding and, and co- surrounded on all sides by trees. Yeah, if it and, doesn't make you sick, it's nice to look at. Yeah, and we got there late at night, and what happens late at night is that the deer run across the road constantly. And so we were driving very, very slowly so as to not hit any deer. And nonetheless, we hit one. And it thankfully was okay. It got up and ran away. But, uh, but that moment quickly worked its way into the script three weeks later when we started writing the script. <laughs> and and it was, it, the visual of it is based entirely on my... I was behind the wheel and just the, 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 the gut reaction you have when you see a deer jump out in front of you... Uh, is incredibly horrific and primal and terrifying and uh, I bear no ill feelings towards the deer whatsoever it just wants to get to the other side of the road but it definitely uh, makes driving a, on that road a more treacherous experience and it felt like a good way to it felt like a good way to get the parents out of the way unfortunately for the parents um, so one of the uh, participants in the movie that, uh, that doesn't get uh, a lot of screen time, gets a lot of voice time, is John Kassir as the voice of Elliot. Um, at what point did you, did you decide that you wanted a, 
real legend when it comes to voice performance uh, to, to do this rather than just you know see who casting came up with was it was it something that you were able to target as a as a priority or was it something that just kind of came up it was something that came about after a few months of trying to create a vocabulary for Elliot entirely out of animal noises and we were failing at it it just wasn't working he wasn't coming to life in the right way and the reason is that animals for all of their emotive qualities don't have the emotional vocabulary that humans do even in terms of how they growl or you know they have you they growl you know a cat will make uh, uh will purr at different pitches or add little noises to kind of let you know how it's feeling but it does it's not quite as dexterous as as what a human can provide and so we we realized that we needed a human being to go in there and imitate an animal but give it the the breadth of of emotion that a human uh, would have and that a human would recognize. Um, and so John Kassir got involved because we were doing some some ADR for another part and his name came up on a list of actors who were available to come, you know, do this random bit of ADR that we needed. And I saw his name and freaked out because I was a huge Tales from the Crypt fan as a kid and I still have the, the Tales from the Crypt Christmas album cassette tape that he did. And, and I was like, John Kassir's just sending his resume in to do a line of ADR. That is insane. And then I remembered that he had done the voice of the raccoon in Pocahontas, the Disney Pocahontas, um, because my mind is full of little bits of trivia like that. And I think you and I are the two people who immediately registered that. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I bet he does great animal noises. And then it turned out that my editor's mother was friends with him. And, uh, and so there are all these circles of connection and we called him up and, and said, yes, we would like you to do the ADR for this one line of dialogue we need, but also would you be willing to come in and try to put down some, some noises for Elliot? And so he came in and did some, some Elliot vocals. And over the next few months, we kept having him come back and do more and more until finally uh, we had a pretty big library of sounds and we cut them into the movie. My editor, Lisa, did a a masterful job of doing that. She really took the reins of, of creating that, uh, that performance in, in terms of how he vocalized himself. And then we brought John in one last time for a day to just go through and, and fine tune things and really, uh, you know, get specific with certain things that we'd cobbled together already. And it wouldn't have been the same. Like having heard the version of Elliot that is just lions and tigers and bears, uh, it wouldn't have worked. And having, his talent and skill and ability to communicate emotion through these weird yarbled sounds that his throat somehow is able to make uh, is is a vital aspect of the movie. And I'm, I'm really glad you asked that because I know it may get overlooked, but he, the movie would not have worked without what he did. Uh, one last thing as you guys charge forward into Neverland, uh, not asking for specific details or you know spoilers or anything like that, or even to comment on on other people that have uh, that have tried to tackle this thing. Is there a single element of the Peter Pan story that the two of you are individually are most excited about tackling? You mentioned you know sword fights in the yard and you know being boys on an adventure that kind of thing. Is there is there something that that you guys are uniquely relishing going after? I think it's it comes down to what I was saying earlier about you know playing Last of the Mohicans and running through the woods shouting at the top of our lungs. Uh, there's an opportunity to recapture that feeling, I think, in a very specific way. 
And yes, flight does play a part of it, but even if their feet never left the ground, I think there's something we can do with Peter and the Lost Boys and all these kids that don't want to grow up that will be primal and, and familiar and wonderful and exciting and feel new and familiar at the same time. And, and then I guess, the, you know, to go back to the key tenet of Peter Pan, the idea of never growing up has been something I've dealt with and struggled with and tried to embrace and failed to embrace all my life. And so just spending some time working through that idea of not wanting to grow up is, is something that's probably necessary for me, but I'm also very excited about. I'm, I'm very excited to... Uh, I'm, I'm digging in a lot in the difference between... Or just the, the, the psychology of somebody who can't tell the difference between make-believe and reality. And I think... Um, and all the things that David said. And just the struggling with growing up. I mean, mid to late 30s here, and I don't, I don't feel it. You know, um, none of the people that I work with feel it. David doesn't feel it. Um, but the struggling to grow up, you know, there's some things happening in, in the world and in life that are forcing us to grow up a little bit. So it's really enjoyable to dig into this character. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thank you. to go back and watch the original so that we wouldn't 
steal from it. And so we wouldn't, uh, you know, I, I, I think there's value in, in movies when you're telling a story a, a second time to not, like, try to do something that's been done before. It's like you try to hit the weight. I I we wanted to recapture, like, the memories that we remember about the original without trying to, like, slavishly recreate individual moments or scenes. We really want to create, like, the way we remembered it, feeling and the, fee the feelings that we had from watching it, rather than trying to literally remake the original. I care. And what were some of those feelings that you wanted to recapture? I mean, I don't know if anyone's seen the original lately, but I mean, I, I remember being pretty dangerous, like feeling kind of like risky and, and strange and sort of, it had a very rough feeling to it and that like it all felt sort of handmade and, and ramshackle and but it also had like just so much heart and humor and wonder to it and and especially like as a kid who grew up loving pets and imaginary friends and all of the things that all, all of the non-verbal friendships you have as a child sometimes just with a stuffed animal like I responded to that type of thing so much and it meant so much to me and I really wanted to just kind of recapture that feeling. So we're going to take a little break before I ask the next question and remind you about the Alamo Drafthouse's three-word review. Um, if you want to type a, if you are on Twitter or Facebook and want to do a three-word review, and this is for you all in Austin and anybody around the country, a three-word review of hashtag Peach Dragon, hashtag three-word review, we encourage you to do that. Just tell some of the words that come to your mind from your imagination after watching the movie. So back to imaginations, I want to know how did you, you had to use your imagination to come up with this dragon, and what were some of the ideas that you were thinking of when you pictured this new dragon that you would get to invent in your mind? He was always going to be furry. Like, they we went in, we went and pitched the movie. Yeah, I mean, so we, we knew we wanted to make something that you could hold on to, and they would want to, to cuddle with, but basically I just like, my cats a lot. True. And Toby likes my cats also. Love them. And, and the only thing missing from our lives with them is that they're not 20 feet tall. I can't sleep on their bellies. So we basically just, I mean, that's really, I, I, I wanted to make a, a dragon that, I mean, dragons are awesome. I love all dragons. Going back to, um, you know, Bryce in this movie, and one of the things I got dorked out about was that she, uh, her dad made Willow, which was a movie I loved as a kid, and the dragon that Eber says I thought was so freaking cool. That was probably the first dragon I loved, and then of course Disney's made some great ones themselves with Maleficent and Sleeping Beauty. But um, the the idea of making just a a twenty foot tall pet, like the, and not like a pet, like a subservient pet, but like the type of pet that you're best friends with. Because when when I was a kid, my dog was certainly one of my best friends, if not the, my literal best friends that I had no friends that were human and that was that was what I wanted to capture with it and and that was you know everything that went into hit the creation of him we were always trying to figure out how to make him a, a character in the movie who was you know an emotional creature a character who could have all the development of all the humans but at the same time capture everything you love about your pets. And so how does a dragon like that get made? It goes from your mind and your idea about a furry green pet dragon and then transforms into this beautiful animal we see on screen. What goes into that process? The design part of it is um, probably the most crucial part because you just got to figure out what it's going to look like. And we, you know, I drew, I'm a pretty bad drawer, but I drew some pictures of what I thought he should look like gave those to a bunch of uh, concept artists, including my brother who did a lot of the design work. 
um, the movie. He also illustrated the little book that Pete has that like, gets lost. And we, I, I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to look like. I, wanted, I knew I wanted his head to be a, you know, bigger than, like too big for his body, and I wanted his neck to be a certain length and to have you know, the fur, but also to have the bat wings, because if you don't have those leathery wings, then they, you know, the creature ceases to be a dragon. And so we, we had a pretty rough idea of it, and then also just a sense of like emotion that he needed to have. So we'd look at animals like elephants or whales that have like those really you know, emotive eyes. Um, and then, so we came up with you know, what he looked like and had a bunch of artwork done, drawings and, and Photoshop renderings of him. And then we gave those to the team at Weta Digital in New Zealand and they start building him. And they build him, you know, entirely digitally in a computer, but they start with a skeleton, add muscles to it, and they really have to make sure he will function as if he's a real creature. And so they go step by step, like putting the, you know, starting with the skeleton, then putting the muscles in, putting like heart, a heart in so you can have a heartbeat, like all the little details that like actually contribute to him being, feeling as much as possible like a real living creature. And then adding the fur and figuring out how long the fur is. It's all done, you know, meticulously, but while you're sitting at a desk on a computer, which is a weird thing. And then, um, and then all the little details like the scars he has or his broken tooth. And you just kind of go through and start adding little things that really bring him to life, the little touches. And, uh, and probably the hardest thing in that process to do is just figure out how big his eyes were going to be because you wanted the eyes to show a lot of emotion, have a lot of character. and a larger eyes are good at that, but if they get too big, it gets a little too cartoony, but if they're too small, you can't read them. So we went through a lot of trial and error getting the, the eyes just right. And uh, so it's a little bigger, it's a little more surrealistic or unrealistic than a real animal, but at the same time, um, just right in that sweet spot where you can still kind of believe that he's, believe that he's real. Something else that brings him to life is his voice. How did you create that? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Mentioned that Toby played the dragon in two scenes. It's true. Um, I, was, I was hiding in a very pokey green head. Yeah, we, we have a. We it wasn't have, meant to be climbed inside of. On set, we would have, usually, we would have nothing. Sometimes we'd have a big green head that was roughly the right size so that, you know, if, if the actors needed to touch it or interact with it. And, uh, and at one point, I don't even know why we made you get in, but you we had you climb inside of it. So that you, I think just to make everybody laugh. Yeah. <laughs> but you're that whole scene where Pete's sitting oh, there awesome. yeah. looking at the stars that Toby's playing the dragon in that scene. Um, but uh where was it going? Oh, then some noises. Has anyone seen Tales from the Crypt? And I hope if you have you're adults and not kids, but <laughs> So the John Cassier, the guy who did the voice of the Crypt Keeper, did the voice of Elliot. And, and mixed in with that are the sounds of lots of different animals. So there's a bear, there's a lion, there's tigers, there's a horse in there at some point. There's a lot of different sounds, but, but uh, we found that if you just used animal sounds, he didn't have enough character, enough emotion, so we needed to get a human. And I'm you know, just a big Tales from the Crypt fan and knew that, uh, that John did animal noises, or could do really good animal noises, and so he came in for a couple days, and just we went through the whole movie, and and, uh, and he just, it's kind of weird to watch him work, because these sounds that are coming out of his mouth don't make sense for a human to make, but he can do it, and it's, it's pretty <laughs> exceptional. So, um, 
I think it would be challenging for your two amazing young actors, Una Lawrence, who plays the young young girl, and Oak Spegley, who plays Pete, uh, to act with a dragon that they hadn't seen before. Where was that a challenge, and what like, kind of other challenges did those two children have? It wasn't a challenge for them at all, surprisingly. They were so good at it that it helped us shoot the movie better because they were so adept at pretending or believing that the dragon was there when it wasn't. Like the whole part where she's reaching up and meeting him and touching him for the first time, there's like literally nothing there. And and she just, you know, I didn't like say like, you know, you need to be petting his nose this, this specific way. I was just like, you just need to go up there and pet the dragon and just let me see how you do it. And she would just nail it. She would, because she was really, really able to believe that he was there. And because both she and him were so adept at doing that, it helped us shoot the scenes better because we were able to see exactly what they were interacting with through their eyes. And it was really quite extraordinary for me and a great gift for me as a director to be able to watch how they acted with something that wasn't there because they completely bought into it and, and believed in it and sold it for both me and the rest of the crew and it really brought the dragon to life on set even though he was never physically there. So perhaps he was there. Yeah, I mean, they, yeah, I think as well. Might, might well. <laughs> I mean, you just can't see him because we're too old. Yeah, we're, we're 19, as I said before. That's really when you age out. Yeah, it's cut off. And Weta did something very smart. They, they did a presentation for them to show them how it was all going to work and what they would see. Um, so they had a pretty good idea of what he would look like eventually. Yeah, they definitely knew what he would look like. And then halfway through the shoot, the very first day that we ever shot anything was when Pete's running through the river at the beginning with the dragon. And so halfway through production, they had finished a couple of those shots already. And so I remember they they emailed them to me when we were on set at the mill and I'm just like, holy cow, this is amazing. And it was the first time I'd seen any of it too. And so I just went and grabbed the kids and showed them on my phone. And it was a really fun moment to like see exactly what the dragon was gonna look like for the first time. So we have time for some questions from the audience. So please be brave and raise your hands high, and I will call on you and repeat your question. I saw one right down the middle. Um, what happens when you touch him and he goes green? So what, what's happening to the dragon when you touch him and he changes color? We wanted to show that he feels comfortable with certain people, and that he feels like he belongs with certain people. And since his fur can change color and he can turn invisible and things like that, we felt that if he, uh, if someone that he responds to touches him and he just light, lights up a little bit and turns a little more, you know, a little brighter shade of green, that just would show that he trusts that person or feels comfortable with them or that that person's okay. And so it happens twice, once with Pete at the beginning and then once when, when Grace touches them. And that was just a way for us to show that these are, these are people that he trusts and that aren't gonna hurt him. There was one right over there, yes. How did you get Pete to ride the flying dragon? We just threw him off a cliff. <laughs> it was a really risky move. It worked. Sometimes you just gotta take that leap. No, we, we had, a, we had a, uh, a, a, a machine that was built by the special effects artists in New Zealand that was sort of like a bucking bronco. It was just this big hydraulic machine with a dragon back on it. And so people would get on that and it, would, it was basically a theme park ride. It was so much fun to ride on it. And he got to do it for a full day, so I'm sure he got sick of it, but I enjoyed it the times I got to ride on it. And uh, it, it basically just like, you know, 
pitches you around and act, it behaves, you program it so it behaves as if it's a creature flying, and then you, you know, in, in post-production, add the rest of the dragon in and add, in, you know, put the sky in and things like that. But, um, but, he, but he was really writing something and it was pretty high off the ground, so we, we got the illusion of him flying. We made it, you know, as realistic as we could for him. We had another 19-year-old over here who had a question. With, uh, with Robert Redford in the cast, did he bestow any directorial uh, wisdom to you during the shoot? So uh, Robert Redford being on the cast, what was like that? What was that like for you as the director to um, work with somebody who is also a director? And did he share some of his um, directorial Redford. wisdom? He made movies. <laughs> First time I heard that. I know he's acted before, but. Um, no, he, Robert Redford is a joy to work with, and he uh, respects the boundaries between, you know, he, he, as, as my favorite assistant director says, he knows how to stay in his lane. And that's a wonderful gift to have, because certainly he's made way more movies than I have, knows way more about making movies than I do, and if he were to offer advice, I would probably be like, oh, you know, yeah, let's just, let's just do what he says. But also, at the same time, he's, he's not there to do that. He's there to, to act. And basically, to do what I say, which is a really weird place to be in, that Robert Redford just sitting there waiting for me to tell him what to do, and 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 he did it. He did it wonderfully, and, and it was it was really fun to just you know he walks on set and everyone's like, holy crap, it's Robert Redford. There's no way to get away from the fact that he's a legend, but he shows up with his sleeves rolled up, ready to work, and and is very quick to disarm everyone, just to let him know, let everyone know that he's not. You know, he is a movie star, he is a legend, but he's also a hard-working actor who's there to make the movie that everyone else is there to make. And so he's a team player in the best way, best case scenario. Right here. Did Disney come to you to make this movie, or did you go to Disney? We met halfway. Yeah. <laughs> we were at one table, they were at one table, and we're like, hey, we know you guys. We across the room. No, we, we, uh, we sort of, you know, they were talking about making this movie, and we, and they knew about us, and so they asked us if we were interested, and that wasn't like offering us a job, they just wanted to know if we would be interested in talking about it, and, and from there we went to LA and went to the Disney studios and sat down, and we just had a couple, like, long conversations about it, about how we would do it, and how, <laughs> if we were going to make this movie, like, what we would want to do with it. And after a couple of those chats, they they asked us we won't they offered us the job, and that was a really exciting thing because we didn't think in a million years they would ever hire the two of us to make this movie. But uh, so it was sort of like we met halfway, as Toby said, and it uh, worked out quite well. How did the dragon fly? So this is this was a little bit about what we were talking about with the computers that helped to make the dragon, but we can talk about making it fly, yeah. And it's, magic. Yeah, it's a little Maybe bit of magic. magic. He, you know, we, we knew that we wanted him to be able to fly because dragons have wings and they should be able to fly. And, and so when we were designing him, we just made sure he had wings that were big enough to keep him in the air. And we looked at things like animals like seagulls and lots of other birds that have really big wings and figured out how they fly. And then we made our dragon do exactly the same thing when we were animating him. Obviously, he's not very good at landing, though. No. He's a terrible lander. All right, we had one in the back in the middle, and then we'll come back here. Um, how did, what happened to his tooth and scar? 
What happened to that missing tooth? Like, and what were the scars from? Landing. It's <laughs> a very poor lander. I think the tooth, the stuff the scars came from, the tooth came because one day he was eating some rocks and he bit down on one of the rocks a little too hard. And I know that's not the most exciting answer, but it's the truth. <laughs> we did film that scene. It was just too long. Yes, sir, you're the pink. Who was Pete? Hmm. Yes. He's that guy right there. Success. Yes. He's the hero of the movie. In the orange? Go ahead. How long did it take to make this movie? It's a lot of different stages, but it's been a little bit over three years from beginning to end. But to shoot, you know, it took, we spent about a year working on the script, and then we shot it, and it took about four months to film it. And then it took about a year from the time we finished filming it to now to put all the pieces together and, and to finish the dragon, really. The dragon took a long time to get right on, on screen. So it's, it's been a three-year process, but it's lots of little pieces of that. So you go through different stages of it. It never feels like it's as long as it really actually was. Okay. Question in the balcony. Okay, so there were a lot of names in the credits. We sat through all the credits, and we want to know how many people worked on this film. Six and a half minutes worth. I, you know, it, it's, it's thousands of people. It takes thousands of people to make a movie like this. So on the crew in New Zealand, when we were shooting, we had probably 300 people, 250 to 300 people. Uh, you know, some people are there the whole time, others aren't. But then when you get into the, the post-production, the visual effects, that number just goes way up because you have so many people uh, working to bring LA to life, and that just is an entire, is an army of people to make a movie like this. So you don't even know True. So, so the movie, yes, we don't know the total number. I mean, I hate saying this, but there are people that work in this movie that I've never met or don't know, because there's, there's just, it, there are the people that I talk to, and then there's like hundreds of people that work under them sometimes, and, and I try to know everybody's name and meet them all, but when it gets this big, especially with the visual effects, you just, you just can't. So it's safe to say this is the biggest film you've ever made, um, but what about that surprised you with having a production this big? Was there any department that was sort of, oh, I didn't know there were that many people who did that, or? There, there, it wasn't really surprising. You, you sort of know going into it that it's gonna, you know, you know that the visual effects are gonna take as many people as it takes. A big part of the reason you know that is because I think I've watched all the behind-the-scenes documentaries on the Lord of the Rings movies, and you just kind of like, you know, on, on big movies like that, you just sort of like figure out how they get made by watching DVDs these days. It's a really good film school. Um, and I mean, the biggest surprise on this movie to me was how much it felt like all the other movies I made. It really didn't feel, aside, you know, you have a lot of people working on it, but at the end of the day, it's still like me and the cinematographer and the camera and a couple actors um, and everyone else, once you call action, kind of fades away in the background because they've got all their own little jobs to do and, and they do them well. And, and if they're doing them well, you don't notice it happening because you're in charge of you know, what's happening in front of the camera. And that felt exactly the same as it had on everything I've ever made. The music is really wonderful in the film. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, the music that you chose and also the score? I'll let Toby handle that one, because Toby was very instrumental in that process, including writing a bunch of the songs. Um, He's going to sing a couple for you. You ready? <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> there was somebody who said no. 
tie the world together with that folk song um, at the beginning, the one that opened the movie and also was in the credits. And we knew who we wanted to write the song, this gentleman named Will Holden, who plays under the moniker of the body, Bonnie Prince Billy. We were like two weeks out from production, and they were like, if you want that to happen, you've got to write it yourself. Um, and that makes total sense. So we did, we wrote it. And uh, just real quick, I mean, I think we did the demo in my car outside of the studio. And luckily everybody enjoyed that tune, and it kind of set the tone for the rest of the music, I think. Yeah, I really did. Like, when people heard that, they were like, oh, that's what this movie should sound like. And thank you, Anel. And yeah, she did. Uh, Anel, who was a costumer, and Toby's fiance uh, sang it. And uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway uh, so then we got, I asked Will Oldham if he would sing it, and he said yes, and uh, we really lucked out. Got yeah, he rewrote a little bit of it too, and, and made it his own, and it was really beautiful. And then from there, we ended up, um, Toby wrote another song, the one that's when when Pete's running through the town, he wrote that with our friend Andrew, and, and that was uh, performed by the Lumineers, and then... Um, St. Vincent does another song in the movie, and we just really kind of found artists that we liked and that had the right sound for the movie and the right feel for the movie, and and basically it's just a bunch of our favorite musicians. It's totally true. Yeah. We have time for a couple more questions. I saw one right here, and then we'll come back here. The question is about the children's book, and is the book a real book? It is now. Um, <laughs> another one of David's brilliant ideas, just these little artifacts, like the songs and artifact that kind of goes through the movie and uh, ties it all together. Uh, the book also ties the movie together and, and kind of represents Pete's journey. And uh, Disney published the book. Yeah, it's out. You can get it. And then it's Barnes & Noble, or anywhere books are sold. <laughs> right here. Okay, how early, David, did you start making movies? When did you know you wanted to be a filmmaker? When I was seven, and I haven't matured since then. I'm still. I made this movie. I made this movie for me as a seven-year-old because I was like, "What would I have loved when I was seven? When I decided I wanted to make movies, and this is entirely geared towards what I would have loved back then." And and that was. When I decided I wanted to do it, I remember I was at a friend's house in their backyard, and I was like, do you think you're ever going to make a movie? And he's like, I don't know. And I was like, I think I will. And then from that point forward, that's all I've ever wanted to do. And that's probably all I'll ever do in my life, so I'm pretty, uh, pretty far along there. So it didn't occur to me until I was about 19. <laughs> OK, we have one uh, last question. And I did see this one go up first, so I'm going to take the one back here. Any ideas that you had that didn't end up making it into the movie? You know, what's funny is that the movie is pretty close to the script. We didn't have to cut any scenes out, really. Like, we shortened some scenes, but there's nothing that really got cut out. We did have one idea very early on that when the dragon leaves the forest, that the forest would die. And that he has to stay in the forest to keep it alive. And that was one of those ideas that was really beautiful on the page, but really didn't feel like we could translate well in a way that made sense uh, and it would fit with the story. So that was an idea that we, we had early on that didn't make it. But other than that, it's pretty much from the day we went in and met with Disney and told them we were going to make a movie with a furry dragon, 
it pretty much was exactly the same from day one to, to now. Well, my first draft of the script, my character was Wayland Earth. Your character wasn't Wayland Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Did anyone Slowly see Toby? Did anybody see Toby in the movie? I saw him. Who knows who Toby was in the movie? The unfortunate ambulance patient. The unfortunate ambulance patient. <laughs> <laughs> Projects. We're retired. We can say it's not going to get any better, right? No, we're going to go, we're going to make a movie this fall with Rob Redford, another one, because he likes us enough to make another movie with him. And so we're going to do that. And then we're working on another movie for Disney called Peter Pan, which is because we decided we all want to make a movie with a named Pete or Peter or something. So look forward to Peter and the Wolf in 2020. Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater in 2022. <laughs>